Lesson will be from Luke 11, 1 through 13. Luke 11, 1 through 13. Now it came to pass, as he was preaching in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, we're only in Luke chapter 11, not even halfway through the book of Luke. It's 24 chapters. But we are in the final months of Jesus' life. There's more recorded about the last six to eight months of Jesus' life in the Gospels than there is about the entire 33 years up to this point. And that's because it's getting rich and it's, be, it's getting to the climax of the story, especially that you and I need. Jesus is touring uh, Judea, which surrounds Jerusalem, <clears throat> and Perea, which is the area east of the Jordan. And so it, it encompasses a, a relatively uh, large area by foot travel. Uh, for us, we may not look at it as such a large geographic location, but he's going to, going to be very, very busy uh, in the upcoming months. And as he draws closer to the culmination of his visit here on earth, which um, I dare say uh, culminates in the cross, actually, he is raised. And, and, and remains on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection, uh, that would conclude his earthly visit, actually, but it culminates in that, that act upon the cross and, and his resurrection from the dead. And as he draws near, he's intensifying his prayer life. And his disciples have noticed some things about his prayer life to this point. They've noticed that it's continuous, it's daily, it's often daily. Um, it can be brief that he is in prayer or at length. Uh, he can pray alone, as he often does, and in this case, a disciple is observing him in the first verse, uh, praying alone. Or he can pray in the company of others. Um, he's just always prayerful. He's consistent in his prayers. That is, it's not just in certain occasions that he prays. He prays at times when he's overjoyed, in thanksgiving and praise to God, and he prays in times of great need. Uh, he prays when circumstances are, are, um, are favorable, and he prays when circumstances are grave. 
and he prays when he's in cheer or when he's distressed. He prays conversationally, conversationally. That is, he has an open dialogue with the Father, and uh, as much in as much as he uh, pulls them into some of these prayers, uh, his, the prayers are intelligible and comprehensible. Uh, he does not talk to God in a different language uh, or use terms too high for them to understand when he talks to his Father. But he prays with urgency. They notice this. He prays with urgency, sometimes all night long, but always expectantly, as if he really expects that God will answer his prayers, and very confidently so. And so we have in this first verse a request from one of his disciples, who it was, we do not know, male or female, one of the twelve, another, uh, does not say. It was a disciple that was following that had observed him in prayer and felt a miss in their own prayer life. You ever felt like that before? I don't pray as I ought. Well, this disciple makes a request of the Master. Lord, teach us to pray. As John the Baptist also taught his disciples to pray. It's kind of based on two things. First of all, I can't find myself in prayer like you. I'm lacking substance. I'm lacking content. I'm lacking depth. How do you pray all night long? Teach us to pray like this. Secondly, John's disciples learned how to pray from John, and, and we actually haven't, haven't asked you to give us discourses on prayer. Would you do that for us? And he turns to them, plural. And so one disciple asks, and he turns to them, and in verse 2, he gives them an answer. The answer is not, well, that's kind of a silly question. Or, haven't you been paying attention? Or, it's not that hard. You just do it. Or, no smart aleck answer, no sarcasm, no, just, I'll teach you to pray. He just answers the question. And it takes probably about a minute. If you read the first 13 verses here, and he touches on some things perhaps in the same discourse, but in the first 13 verses, we really have the answer to the question, how to pray. Think of this, church. It took him about a minute to speak these words. He doesn't turn to the, to the disciples and say, get out your pen knives and some papyrus. I'm going to tell you everything that I say to God when I pray all night long. And if you guys are faithful, you'll learn to pray all night long by praying these same things also. This is profound. This is the takeaway for the day, and I want you to see how it unfolds through the rest of the sermon. This is profound. Are you ready for this? In the next two verses is the actual prayer that he says to learn to pray. And then in the, the following verses up to verse 13, and I just kind of cut it off there, he's, he's teaching them about God's response. But just in a couple of verses... He teaches them how to relate to God. If they can learn, as has been suggested, the nine relationships revealed in these short phrases that he says, pray in this manner. If we can learn these relational things about our relationship to God, 
we'll be able to pray all night as if we were a son of God. Are you ready for them? Would you like to see what they are? They were veiled to my eyes in a large part until delving further into studies of some great scholarship, which basically just brought me back to saying it really didn't need great scholarship. But like a parable, Jesus gave them this. And then once I'm sure they were shocked as we are to find that he shared this in a matter of about nine phrases. That includes what he taught in Matthew, by the way. I'm going to pull in a thing or two from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, a different, a different discourse on prayer. That includes those things. They can walk away and say, what's the big deal about praying that prayer? But if they'll give it thought, and if you'll give it thought, you'll realize before long that you're going to be peeling back many layers of an onion. The first is this. When you pray, say, Father. Father. You pray to the Father. Actually, not to me. You pray to the Father of the Godhead. And you address Him as Father. He's actually Yahweh. You may call him by the designation of your father. It's the first thing you need to know. Not only may I call him my father as my pray, as I pray, you may call him your father. How profound. How profound is that? That as John said, what manner of love is this that he bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God? Here Jesus is saying, what manner of love is this that I'm authorizing you, that I am allowing you, that I'm giving you the privilege to call Him your Father? Jesus gives us permission to be drawn into communion with God and conversation with God as a member of his dear family, in his household. God, I believe, yes, does hear the prayers of those who are outside of Christ who are seeking him. I believe this is how they find each other. When one calls upon his name, I believe he provides a path to the gospel and to heaven. But this is a privilege of those who know Him as family, that you can be comfortable coming to Him and addressing Him as you would your own loving Father. This is not a universal privilege of all mankind, but one reserved for those who are going to inherit the Father's riches. Who are born of the Spirit into the family of God, who are dependents in His household. Wow. We can come to Him for His affirmation, for His approval, and His providence. Father, or as Matthew recorded Him saying in another occasion, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. 
hallowed be your name. Another universal request. Hallowed in all the earth. Father, Father of, of all your children, may your name be relegated in all the universe as separate and apart and above all other names. I petition that you would set yourself apart continually as God. So we have the second relationship here. Father and child first. Now God and worshiper. God and worship. Hallowed be your name. Now that I've never said to my father. I've addressed my father's father before. I've seen him as my master before. But I've never said to my father, hallowed be your name. That's reserved for Godhead in all the earth. His great love elicits a deep reverence for his name and for his nature. And a worshiper would do well to see him both as father and creator. But such a one, I will warn you, will not turn easily from a prayer in which he calls God his Father and Sovereign, if you will, in all the earth. Your name stands above all else. And then turn and use his name lightly or vainly in casual conversation with men. How could you? Or how could you bring uh, shame upon the name that you're wearing Christian? But rather, such a one who understands this about this prayer will honor and subscribe to his great program as he brings out in the next phrase. Your kingdom come. This suggests the relationship of a king and his subjects. Your kingdom. You're the king. May your kingdom come. Another universal request. This part of the prayer has been discarded in our brotherhood to a large degree. I know I was taught, well, this part's been fulfilled. And so we don't, we don't say this when we pray, first of all, that's a separate issue as to when we say the prayer repetitively and how we would mean that. That's a separate thing. But has his kingdom come? In one sense, absolutely. Within a few short months of him teaching this to pray for the kingdom to come, it comes. And yet there's another sense in which we are part of his kingdom here on earth. And there is the kingdom in heaven. And there is still some separation of all of those who are going to ultimately be together, as he wrote about in, through Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, that, that he would bring all things together in one in Christ Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 11, at the end of that great chapter on faith, he says that God wills that all come together, those that have obeyed him in the past with those who have obeyed him in the present, Old covenant or new covenant, living or dead, all of them, he said, it's his will to bring them all into the pearly gates at one time. 
So there is a kingdom that is beyond our reach right now, an extension of it, if you will, that has not come to us, nor have we come to it. There is a sense in which then we still may pray, technically, your kingdom come. This is not to hurry God. This is to subscribe or ascribe to being a part of it. When you say, your kingdom come, what you're saying is, I willingly ascribe to your cause, and I am ready for your kingdom to come. If you're living in sin, you don't want to pray, your kingdom come. Not now. Give me some time. I need some time. Your kingdom not come right now. Well, the kingdom has been given to us here on the earth to be a part of urgently and immediately. But if you're in sin, no, you don't want to see the Son of God come in all His glory and be found unready. But those who are ready, those who have understood that God is sovereign and that God has reached down as a loving Father and has gifted me with an inheritance in His family, can say, I long for the rest of this because we have not yet obtained all the riches that God has to afford us. Is that not right? I long. Paul said, I long to be with Him. I look forward to that day. Why? So that the kingdom will be in its completeness and all will be one. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here is an assertion of faithfulness. We're to be about the Father's business. May your will be done here on earth as if to say, through my hands, through my feet, through my service to you. May your will be done. This suggests a master-servant relationship, does it not? And so we have the relationship of a father and a child. We have the relationship of God, the Creator, and worshipers. We have the relationship of a king with his subjects. Now we have, fourth of all, a relationship with a master as a servant in his household. We must be about His business then and to follow His agenda as the faithful angels in heaven follow His agenda. As your will is done in heaven. We get a glimpse into this in, in a number of passages as to what that will is in heaven. Hebrews 1.14 is one place where He says, what, what are the angels but ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit eternal life? The will of God in heaven among those who are part of the kingdom, including those angels, is carried out by them obediently ministering to us. And then he turns and says, you carry out the will of God on earth. How do we do that? Just like the angels in heaven. We minister God's will to one another on this earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I ascribe to this great mission. These four parts of the prayer then make up the first of what R.C. Foster calls the three essential elements of prayer, adoration, which is what those were. Adoration. I adore you, 
who you are and what you're about. I adore you. We might say it's praise. It's adoration. The second part is thanksgiving. The third part, he says, is petition. Now, we actually won't discuss in any detail the thanksgiving part of this. Let me just say to you this, now that we're kind of halfway through it. Thanksgiving is embodied in the whole thing. The whole thing is from a grateful heart. And so you may not see it. Jesus say, I am thankful, dear God, to you. The whole thing is thankful. But now in the last five phrases, where we see five more relationships, you're going to see the petition of a man toward God. And you're going to see it go from being a universal type of a, of a petition to a very private and personal series of petitions. Give us this day, or day by day as Luke records it, our daily bread. Isn't it interesting that he didn't say, give us our daily bread? Give us day by day our daily bread. I want all my bread. Like I want my refrigerator full. Of, I've even got I even have bread in the freezer right now. Don't you have a, enough food to last you a couple days at least right now? Maybe not. Sunday's your shopping day. I don't have any food. In fr- I bet we do. I bet we, I bet we could go back to the house and find cans and, and, and freezer full of stuff. And He says, pray this though. Pray that God would give you this day what you need. Now, this is, these, are, these are separate sermons, every one of these things. And so I'm, I'm trying to show you just this one aspect of the relationship. But here you have the relationship of benefactor and recipient. I mentioned before that we are dependents in the household of God. Appropriate term for this time of year, right? In tax season, uh, whether you can claim dependence or not. Well, in a very literal sense, uh, I stopped. we stopped claiming Colton when he actually became independent. We had to write him off as not a dependent anymore. And in the same sense, though, when he was dependent, he needed things from us, expected things from us. Well, we need our daily bread. Do you know, don't you know, that even with the rain falling this morning and a refrigerator or freezer waiting for you at home, or if you decide you want to go out to a restaurant and there's just an abundance of food everywhere, don't you know that if God willed, He could shut off our food supply immediately? I mean, they're recalling spinach all over the place right now, right? A little glass in it. Do you know that if God wanted to, you could go hungry quick in this country right now? You shut down your electricity, you start having issues with your food, And all of a sudden, my freezer don't matter. I just want you to think about it and be humbled by that. Even though we have an abundance and a supply, God wills that we have our food today, and I'm thankful for that. Amen? He has willed again today. His mercies are new every morning. Jesus didn't instruct us, on the other hand, To pray for the luxuries which the world seeks. This is not a prayer for poor people. Well, the reason he says to pray day by day was back in their culture. In the first century, he's got a bunch of disciples and they're all following him around. You know, remember, they don't have much food and they're always talking about food and all that. He's instructing his disciples, some of them who are wealthy, 
to pray day by day for food. Interesting. He's not instructing them to pray for the excess and the luxuries. He's not instructing them to ask God to enable their pleasure-seeking mission. He's not asking God to enable us to be tripped up by excess, to become lovers of wealth, to be comfortable as the man who said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. He does not want us to be thinking that way, and he wants us to be understanding that this is a day-to-day task. God, give me my food. It's just this simple. Give me my food today. I won't worry about tomorrow. Give me my food today so that my body can be physically strengthened to do this great will about which I just talked when I said your kingdom come and your will be done on earth. Feed me. Give me strength. I've got work to do in your kingdom. That's the context of this. Not, I think you'd let me starve if I didn't beg you for food. It's strengthened my body and helped me not to become tripped up by excess. Help me not to be comfortable with things that can be taken away at any time and leave me faithless. That's a powerful one. It's hard for me to go on to the next one with that one because maybe it points to my own shortcomings enough that I found that to be strikingly powerful. And second petition that's very personal. Give us our daily bread as our benefactor and forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins as a creditor forgives a debtor of his sin. What effect this relationship has on the heart when we realize that we're sinners, that we cannot repay God for the damage we've done to ourselves or, much less to others, by our sins, and that He would still offer to forgive our every sin. While man was buried in debt to God, Paul said in Romans 5 that God demonstrated how much He loved us and that while we were buried in debt, with an, unable to, to pay back God in any way, shape, or form with any resources that we could muster, Christ died for us. You're a debtor. And Paul said, my indebtedness now is to do His will and please Him and, and stand before Him as a servant that he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's my indebtedness, is to repay him with his will and his cause, not my own resources and not my own power and not my own gifts. He only asks what is right to ask of us, that we would turn to our fellow man and forgive their sins against us. So he says... In the seventh one, pray this, forgive, for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Matthew records, as we also forgive those who sin against us. Pray as, or forgive as I forgive. It's only right that God would say, 
I will pour out my mercy abundantly upon you. When I see you abundantly being merciful to your neighbor. The cup that you use, whatever measure you fill it up with, I'll measure that to you. That's only right. How many of you have ever done that where somebody said to you, how can, can I repay you? And you've said, just go and do that for somebody else. Or perhaps you were the one who was at the mercy of someone you felt like there's got to be something I can do. And you just said, just remember that and do it for somebody else. It's all God is doing here. I will forgive you as I see you in the process of living your life forgiving the debts of people who really hurt you. They really do. And I want to see you forgive them of that. So our creditor forgives our debts as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And I would say to you, I would submit to you that he is our teacher in this case, and we are his pupils, that he would say, you now learn this and go do it, and I will give you a great score. I will give you a great score in the test of life. I don't mean that in any way to suggest that somehow we're going to work our way to heaven. Of course not. But only in the sense that Jesus taught it. He'll measure it out as you measure it out. And he suggests strongly that we do so in a way that we press down the cup full to where it's sifted and all the air is pressed out of that and it's overflowing on the top. And that's how we serve mercy to people because that's how we should want to serve because we're thankful. But especially if you want to receive it that way, and I need it. <laughs> Don't you? I need God's cup to be full, to be poured out on me on the judgment day when I will be standing before Him imperfect on my own, but in the righteousness of Christ. Thank God for Him. Eighth relationship. A rabbi with his disciple. Listen, do not lead us into temptation. Lead us. Doesn't that suggest a guide? Doesn't that suggest one whom we're following? It does. The Jews of, of this day, when they used the term rabbi and disciple, it was a relationship where disciples would literally sit at the feet of a rabbi as he taught. That's why they called him Rabboni. You're the greatest teacher. Or they would just address him as rabbi, whom we're following. But they would follow not only the, the, the classroom instruction, they would follow them throughout the city in the day-to-day intercourse with other people and then the exchanges and the dealings that took place at the marketplace or even in the home where they learned by observation how to live life as a godly person. And he says, I want you to pray to God as your great teacher, as your life guide, not to lead you into temptation. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus did not lead his disciples into the wilderness for 40, 40 days to be tempted by the devil? I bet you they were thankful for that. Have you noticed that he hasn't asked us to go have hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil after 40 days of hungering and thirsting? 
Thank you, Lord. I don't think I could do that. Do not lead us into that kind of temptation, Lord. James said that he does not tempt us, but he does allow Satan to tempt us. He allows it only because he provides a way of escape, only because it is a teacher, only because it is the way in which impurities are purified and our strength is built when we are able to overcome temptation, we know it's not by our own power. But if you're in prayer like this, do you think, first of all, as this suggests, being prayed in the morning, do you think that you might approach your day differently if you prayed in this manner in the mornings before you set foot out the door or even engaged with other family members? or talked about the day's challenges, problems, and all this, that you, that you prayed, lead me not into temptation. Help me to forgive others as I desire your forgiveness. Do you think that would change your attitude? Do you think you would be successful? Jesus is telling you you can be. That's why He said pray. Pray like this. Oh yes, rabbi and disciple. I'm a disciple and I need you to protect me from being tempted beyond, as Paul said, what I'm able to bear. And God does promise to do that. Too much prosperity is most often the way of defeat. Foster says, we should remember the petition, give us this day as we pray, do not lead us into temptation. He says, too much prosperity is most often the way of defeat. But how many of us ever pray to God to see to it that we never have more worldly possessions than we can control. Do you, do you find yourself serving your possessions? Maybe you should pray, God, take things away if I'm losing my faith and my hope. Take things away from me. We don't do that too often. And we need to pray that Jesus would guide us into heaven, not into personal happiness or comfort or luxury. Guide me to heaven. That incorporates a whole different set of rules to play by. Finally, deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation, but in contrast to that, deliver us from the evil one. The reality of Satan is one pronounced thing in this statement. But we see here the relationship between redeemer and redeemed. Redeemer and redeemed. Perhaps the most urgent of all, to ask to be delivered is to ask to be saved. Is this also no longer necessary for a Christian, for a disciple who's been saved? Think of it. Disciples, I want you to pray to be delivered. Well, we've already done that. He was baptized with the baptism of John over in the river, and I was baptized after you came along by some of your disciples, and we're saved. Doesn't this suggest that you need saving every day? Deliver us today. When you give me my daily bread, would you also give me my daily dose of forgiveness? Would you also give me my daily dose of protection? Would you give me my daily dose of salvation by washing me in the blood of Christ? This is simply what John dealt with in 1 John chapter 1 when he said, if we say that we have no sin, we lie. But if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us all sins, cleansing us in the blood of Christ. We, Christians, if we confess our sins, He'll continually cleanse us. And Jesus is teaching us here, don't forget that you're redeemed and you need continual redemption and delivery from Satan when he grabs a hold of your ankle or he grabs a hold of your heart or he grabs a hold of your mind. God, deliver me from this, from my flesh, from my worldly thinking. Wow. If we can remember that we are praying to our Father, understanding that He's also our God and our King, our Master, our Benefactor, our Creditor, our Guide, and our Redeemer, you'll be able to pray all night long, church, all night long, because that opens up an awful lot of deep, deep, dark spaces within our hearts, does it not? Now, when, they, when he walked away from that, they said, well, how, how does he do that? Stretch that out all night. Don't you think that they went back and said, well, if we address him as father, I guess I've had long talks with my father about some of my daily issues and troubles and asked for his guidance and asked for him to, to forgive me and I've asked for his permission and I've asked for his will and I've asked for... That's just with my Father. Do you see how we can pray His sovereignty about the nations at large, about our own country, about elections and leaders and all these things? And we can pray about a lot just in each one of these categories as we have that privilege of relating to Him in this way. How powerful. What another tremendous proclamation of His deity here. that he would do this in just a few verses. Those last verses, I'll just submit to you. I'm going to step down, but those last verses about the friend who has who woken up at, at midnight and asked for bread, and it's, he's suggested that he's cold and he's in bed and his kids are in bed huddled together, and, and he, he's annoyed. Well, that's supposed to be God. So if you annoy God enough, he'll give you what you want. Point is exactly the opposite. God is not the friend who's annoyed. So ask and you'll receive, he says. God is not the friend that you have to be persistent with. Please open up the door. That's how we look at that persistence in prayer. Saying that's not him. Or the father whose son asks him for bread and he receives a stone. Thanks. Or an egg. Here's a scorpion. Right? God is not that Father. He's the Father who gives you, here, the Holy Spirit to go with you and provide for all of your needs. How much more than these earthly friends and parents is God able to bless you? Here's how much He gave you His Spirit. What do you lack? Only those things, James said, that you fail to ask for. Well, we ask. You ask amiss. You're asking for yourself. This is where fights and wars come from among you. Instead of God providing for you, you're seeking your own substance and you just want to use God's richness to let you borrow stuff. 
pray like this. I hope that you'll take that home. I hope that you'll go home and reread that and even pray it. Pray that prayer. Go ahead. We say, oh, we don't rehearse the Lord's Prayer. Oh, you should. But when you do, take your time and go through that prayer and pray to God. Do it today. It's a rainy day. What are you going to do today? But if you need to respond to this God who calls you by His gospel, you need to do that urgently. And we pray for you urgently to respond today. Let's stand and sing.